0: The last few weeks, as we've been walking through uh, Ephesians 4 and 5, um, we've been really just looking at what it means to be the church. The series uh, that we've been that we've entitled uh, for our time in Ephesians is "We Are the Church." Um, as we as we look at what Ephesians says, it lays out for us the gospel that forms the church, uh, and then uh, it lays out for us how the gospel directs the church, how it uh, calls us to live as God's. People, um, Ephesians four is the beginning point in which Paul gets practical uh, with what the gospel implies for us as a people, um, of of what it means for us to walk out um, uh, the the faith and the uh, the good news that we've received in Christ. And you know, it's it's interesting. I think sometimes as Christians, there's language that we we use that's sometimes particular in house language that sometimes sounds weird. You. Uh, you hear people talk about the, your walk. How's your walk, right? And uh, you know, if you weren't talking to a Christian and you asked somebody how their walk was, they might be like, you know, I think it's all right. Like my gait is okay, you know. Um, but the language of walk means how you live. It's a it's a lifestyle, is what. Paul is talking about it's the it's the way that you live it's the way that you order your life and so uh, throughout the book uh, of Ephesians and really throughout the New Testament anytime we see this language of walk it's about the lifestyle of the Christian it's about the way that we live and uh, and Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, we really get a foundation for holiness, of, of what happens when a person comes to faith in Christ, how they turn away from their old way of life, their old manner of living, not walking as those who don't know God, but now they come to Christ and they begin to to walk in a new manner, which is defined by putting off the old self and putting on the new self, and Paul began to gave some began to give some practical examples of what that looks like. Uh, starting in verses 25 through 32, we we saw some just concrete examples of what it means uh, to to walk in holiness. How uh, the Christian life should be marked by transformation. Well, uh, in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21, which is where we'll be today, uh, Paul continues uh, to. Uh, to really flesh out what it means uh, to, to be holy, what it means to live a life of holiness, what it means really to walk in holiness. And, and he uses this term, walk, in three different, three different times in our passage, and it's going to give shape uh, to uh, to what we're going to talk about today. He's going to say, walk in love, in Ephesians 5, 1-2, and he's going to say, walk in light as we are children of light in verses 3 through 14. And then he's going to say, starting in verse 15, walk in wisdom, uh, as not as unwise, but as wise. These these three uh, kind of sections within uh, this passage really help us to understand what holiness means. Uh, just practically, you know, when we talk about holiness, we have different images that come into our mind. Uh, the word holy means to be set apart by God and set apart for God, And those two things are important. We're set apart by God as we come to him in saving faith. But when we come to know God, it's not just that we get set apart by him, but we get set apart for and unto the life that he wants us to live. And you can't get any more practical than what Paul does in verses 1 through 21 of chapter 5. He's going to say holiness means that we walk in love holiness means we walk in love you know as we as we think about holiness um, sometimes it, it it feels cold and maybe harsh it has this implication of uh, of being distant and and we're going to see in our passage today that holiness does mean that we distance ourselves from what is um, what is sinful and what uh, displeases God and yet uh, here at the very forefront of of what Paul is talking about when he talks about holiness. He says that love is actually what defines holiness. Uh, So it's not something that's cold and harsh, but rather something that's actually warm and welcoming. Holiness, uh, as we understand for God to be holy, means he's separate from us. And yet, as he calls us to be holy, part of what that means is to actually live and walk in love. You see, God's holiness can't be separated from his love, nor can our call to walk in holiness be separated from what it means to walk in love. Let's look at Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. You heard it read uh, in our worship, uh, in our time of worship. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And here it is. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the call is to walk in love, but what does it mean to walk in love? Do we get to define what's loving? Do we get to set the agenda for what it means to love others? Well, verses 1 and 2 give us two motivations for our love. Uh, You see, uh, it says, uh, be imitators of God as beloved children, and then walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And and it's in the the reference to being beloved children and being uh, the reference to what Christ has done for us that we actually know what it means to love. So here's the two motivations for living a life of love, walking in love. The first is that we are beloved children. So a child... um, perhaps at a, just a, a very basic level, has a desire in some way, shape, or form to imitate their parents, uh, to, to imitate here the language of imitating uh, the Father, of imitating God the Father. And, and if, if we are to understand that walking in love means some type of imitation of our Heavenly Father, uh, we as beloved children, uh, we, we are walking in love not because we want to prove something to God, our Father, we are walking in love not because we are trying to earn something from our Father, but we are walking in love because we have been loved. We are beloved children. And the freedom of being loved means that there's nothing for you to prove that you're free uh, to to imitate the one who has loved you. And so think about God. Think about his love for us. And the Bible is not short on details of God's love for us. The Bible is overflowing with God's love. And if God is our Father, then that means that the way we love should reflect how God the Father loves. Think about how God the Father loves. God the Father loves the unlovable. God loved those who didn't love Him in return. God loved those who resisted and rejected His love. Think about the uh, the last words of Christ on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love extended to those who didn't share the same love for God. love to those who didn't love him in return, in fact, those who resisted it. God's love those who hated him when, when Jesus walked on this earth and and uh, uh, and he lived his life, he did so in a way that demonstrated love towards others in part it's why. People were drawn to Jesus because they saw something that was so different than, than often what the religious leaders of the day reflected. Which was a shame because what God taught in the Old Testament was to love God and to love neighbor. It was, it was reflected in God's very character that he loved the unlovable and he called his people to reflect that and yet they failed to do it. And so we see in Jesus how God loves the unlovable. And in fact, it's exactly what Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, both in Matthew 5 and in Luke 6. Uh, Jesus would say, don't just love those who are like you. Don't just love those who would give you something in return, but love those who hate you. Love your enemies. Bless them. Serve them. Do good to them. And and as I, as I think and dwell on Jesus's teaching uh for how we are to love others it's really in many ways it it's radical it's dangerous to love the unlovable do you realize the risk that that puts us at it, it means that we make ourselves vulnerable to those who who have no concern for us it, it means that that perhaps we we love uh, we are giving ourselves in love and in return we might actually receive the opposite this makes no sense, and this is yet how God loved, and we are beloved children, so we must love and imitate our Father, who loved the unlovable. He also loved the uh, the vulnerable. God loved those who could offer nothing in return, those who who could give nothing back, right? He he didn't he didn't just love the the rich, who could repay him. He didn't need their money. He didn't love. Um, he didn't just love those were influential as if they could give him an upper hand. Um, he, he loved the vulnerable. In fact, as you look at the Old Testament and you see God's commands and concerns for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow, for the refugee, you see God's concern for the vulnerable, but it's not just His concern for the vulnerable. Listen to how God defines himself throughout the Old Testament. God doesn't just tell his people to care for the vulnerable, but God defines himself as one who loves the vulnerable. He says in Psalm 146, 9, the Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. In Psalm 68, he defines himself as the father of the fatherless. And the protector of the widows. It it says protector of widows is God in his holy habitation in Psalm 68 5. In Deuteronomy 10, in the law, it says that God executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. This is how God defines himself. And And no doubt, as I think we evaluate our own hearts, if we're to love God as God loves, it means that we're going to love people who may not love us in return, but we're also going to have to turn our eyes away from ourselves and uh, how we define comfort and familiarity and safety and security and look to those who are in need and love like God loves. And not only love like God loves, but identify with those whom God so closely identifies with. I think I've shared this story before, but I a while back was <clears throat> at a kind of a workshop discussing how to care for the homeless uh, in our city and put on and hosted by <clears throat> the Delana Center uh here uh in downtown Ann Arbor. And I I went uh, just burdened a desiring to learn how we could be a part of perhaps doing something and <clears throat> And I, I say this carefully and, and with humility. There's, there's, there are churches in, in our city that grieve my heart that perhaps would, would say maybe Jesus isn't the only way or maybe uh, maybe the Bible isn't true. Um, we're, we're not really sure that Jesus really rose from the dead. I mean, these, are, these aren't just kind of secondary differences but some primary differences. Um, but often... It's churches who sometimes aren't submitting themselves to God's word, believing Jesus to be the only way to salvation, that that Christ died on the cross for our sins and literally rose from the dead. Um, When I went to that workshop, there wasn't another church who would have a similar statement of faith like ours did. There wasn't another church who would say they would go about preaching the gospel Uh, of jesus in our place and for our sins and rose from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness is found through turning to jesus there wasn't another another church and and i'm not saying this to say something good about us i'm saying it really as an indictment upon us who believe and preach the gospel that often what we believe and preach doesn't lead us to love our father to imitate our father as his beloved children We've got the right gospel. But so often the question is, is what is it doing to the way that we live? And holiness isn't just about a pious life. It's about imitating our Father who loves the unlovable and loves the vulnerable and He loves the world. Listen, I want to, I if we can just break it down, I want a John three sixteen kind of love to permeate us that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. This is, this is our Father who didn't just love some people, didn't just love uh, a certain group over here, who loved all people. And, and 1 John 2, 1-2, through 2, it says that He not only died and not only uh, offers forgiveness and loves uh, some people, but He died for the whole world. God's love can't be limited to some. And in Ephesians 2, we see the gospel, both in its horizontal and its vertical dimensions. It's vertical dimensions in Ephesians 2, 4. It says that God... Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. In which when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. And being made alive in Christ when we turn from our sin and we put our trust in Jesus, then we see that that same love leads God to create a multi-ethnic family. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, he brings together Jew and Gentile into the body of Christ, into one new man, one new body, defined by Jesus as the head, but reflecting God's love for the world. If we are to imitate our Father, we have to ask ourselves, how will we move towards those who are different than us? We want to be a church that's Not just in our city, but we want to be a church that reflects our city and our community. We want to be a church that reflects God's heart for all people. And that leads us to ask the question, how are we loving people different than us? How are we loving uh, across differences, ethnic, racial, cultural differences, language differences? We're beloved children. And if we're beloved children called to imitate our loving Father, it can't mean anything less than this. But not only are we beloved children, we're rescued sinners. So to walk in love means that we walk as Christ loved us and gave gave himself up for us. I've said this before, and I I think I've heard this from Tim Keller, but uh, he defines love, uh, he says, all love is substitutionary sacrifice. All love is substitutionary sacrifice. If you want to love a friend by picking them up dinner and bringing it to them, substitutionary sacrifice. Me making dinner in your place, right? Somebody say amen. That's good. You want to, you want to love somebody today? Do that for him, right? You, you want to bear a burden? You want to listen to something hard that somebody's going through? Requires of the person who bears that burden, substitutionary sacrifice, a willingness to step aside from what you're doing to listen to your friend and bear their burdens. You want to pursue someone who's far from God, showing them love. All love is substitutionary sacrifice. Why? Because the love of God is substitutionary sacrifice. Christ in our place who loved us and gave himself up for us. And Paul often uses this language in Galatians. He would say that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who died for us and gave himself up for us. It's Christ's sacrifice in our place that becomes the pattern for our love. And I think that's, that's actually one of the things that is maybe most unsettling. I, as I said earlier, that this type of love is radical and even dangerous. You see, I think sometimes we think love and we, we have this idea of the, the, feel-good, kind, the feel-good kind of love. And yet, the love that God calls us to is the love that calls us to sacrifice. So the question we have to ask ourselves if if we're to walk in love is what are we willing to suffer to love others like Jesus loved us? What are we willing to suffer to love others like Jesus loved us? Holiness means that we walk in love. But holiness also means that we walk in light. Now, Paul's going to get real. He's going to be straightforward. And I'm also going to try to keep this PG. Um, <clears throat> but he goes on to unpack what it means to walk in light. Uh, we, we heard uh, in Ephesians 5, 8 and 9 that we are indeed children of light. So we are to walk as children of light in a similar manner um, as, as we just talked about being Beloved children means that we, in turn, reflect our Heavenly Father. If we are children of light, it means that we walk in the light, that we, we don't like the darkness, but instead we walk in the light. And, and he's going to uh, kind of this paradigm of walking in the light shapes verses 3 through 14. Listen to these, uh, these verses. It says, But sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them. For anything becomes visible, anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Holiness means that we walk in light. Light throughout the Bible is used to refer to God. God is light. I am the light of the world, Jesus would say. In turn, He would tell His disciples that we are salt and light. The salt of the earth and the light of the world. This is woven into our identity as Christians. And in fact, we're going to see in a minute that this isn't just something that we do, but it's something that we are. God made us glow in the dark when he called us to himself. He makes us light. And in turn, we're called to reflect that light. But... In some ways, it seems like a stark contrast between verses 1 and 2, and especially verses 3 and 4, right? We've been talking about the love of God, and then, bam, Paul begins to talk about sexual immorality. But I don't actually think it's that big of a jump. Because love, if if love is by its nature self-sacrificial, what Paul is going to talk about as he discusses lust and sexual immorality, it is by its nature self-centered at its core. And as Paul often does, he will, he will point to and touch on the things that are, are most pressing, perhaps, in a, in a community, in a culture uh, for the Ephesians, calling them, reminding them of what holiness looks like in the places, perhaps, where they're most tempted to compromise and not reflect God. And as I read verses 3 through 14, I say to myself, not much has changed from the time of the church at Ephesus in the time today. Sometimes we think that things are so much worse than they used to be in this area or that area. And and uh, I don't know that we can we can say one way or the other. I think there certainly are some things in this particular topic because of technology, because of the pervasiveness and the ever-present nature of, of the temptation and the availability and accessibility of, um, of a moral content that... That allows for these things to be partaken in more freely and available uh, to, to us today. But the, the same thing that was being the same thing that was tempting the church in Ephesus is tempting the church today. Mission agencies believe that there's a lack of missionaries to go to the nations in part because men and women are compromised sexually and unable to uh, walk and unwilling to walk in repentance and turn the the word that Paul uses here uh, <clears throat> the word in, in the in the original language pornea, you can uh, you can understand where uh, we get the what what it leads to us defining today it's referring to all activity <clears throat> sexual activity outside of the relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage uh, that's the the base um uh, context that God gives for the expression of oneself in this manner. Everything else, Paul says, is outside of God's will and is offense to God. But listen to how Paul talks about it. He says it shouldn't even be named among us. How, how easy it is for us to be desensitized, for us to become numb and familiar with what shouldn't, shouldn't even be named among us. Now, listen, I believe that there's a danger in being naive and not understanding the the reality of the world in which we live. But I don't believe our problem most often is that we are naive uh, because uh, the exposure uh, often to this type of immorality is beginning for kids in middle school, if not earlier. I don't think our problem is being naive. I think our problem is becoming numb and desensitized. To what God says shouldn't even be named among us you see we entertain a little here we endure a little there we find a little pleasure in this occasionally you know but not all the time and at least we're not like them and what we begin to make room for eventually we begin to embrace eventually we begin to delight in, eventually we begin to want more in. It's the same reason that Paul defines covetousness in relation to immorality here. There's this lust and desire for more. It's talking about the insatiable nature uh, of immorality and the way it plays itself out in our lives. And verse 4 makes clear that we're not just talking only about the things that we do, but also the things that we would talk about. He goes to talking about even the, the way in which we would talk about that which is vulgar or that which is um, coarse joking. I love a good comedian. But you can hardly find one that, that doesn't violate Ephesians 5 verse 4. But how often do we find ourselves laughing at coarse joking? How often do we find ourselves uh, entertaining and allowing for vulgar language? Listen, I'm not telling you to be the language police everywhere you go. But God says it's out of place for you as his people. It shouldn't even be named among us and it's out of place. And so I just, as I look at what it means to walk in the light, it means that we allow what God says to be sin, to be an offense to him, that we would have such a high sensitivity, a high reverence for who God is, that we wouldn't make room for that which is an offense to him. And this is a challenge for all of us. I don't know particularly how this may play out in your life. I'm not naive enough to think that there's not some way, shape, or form in which you are being tempted to believe that immorality isn't as bad as people say it is and that maybe the church is behind the times in these areas and that they just need to calm down a little bit. And, you know, look, we got to be in the world. we got to know what's out there. So we imbibe and take in whether it's your favorite show, whether it's what you listen to, whether it's what you watch. Whether it's what you engage in, in a conversation, in person or on your phone. What you're thinking about when you have nothing else to think about. What you do with others or what you do when you are by yourself. But I believe that holiness means we walk in the light. And to walk in the light is to allow God to shine the brightness of His holiness upon all that is sin to Him. And when we see sin for what sin is, we run from it. We turn from it. So if holiness means we walk in the light, there's there's just a few things that follow in these verses that I want to encourage us with. Holiness means that we walk in the light. The only way to combat immorality, the only way to combat sin of this nature is to make yourself satisfied in God. Did you notice what it says? Don't let there be, in verse 4, don't let there be any coarse joking, uh, don't let there be any vulgar talk, any of this uh, crude joking which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. Our struggle with sexual morality is ultimately a failure to be satisfied in God. Ultimately, I believe that all, all sin is reflecting a failure to be satisfied in God. You're greedy, a failure to be content and satisfied in God. You're, you're angry, you want, you want others to pay for what, you've, what they've done to you, failure to be satisfied in God. You're, you're, you're looking at and partaking in things that you shouldn't, failure to be satisfied in God. To be content in Him. Another way to say it is that this is a worship problem. As a, a people, God has made us to worship. And in fact, when He talks about this, He says about covetousness, which is idolatry. It, it's, it's elevating these things, these desires above and before God. It's a failure to give thanks. Listen, if you're giving thanks, you can't give thanks to God and sin at the same time. To give thanks to Him is to worship Him. To give thanks to Him is to be satisfied in Him. So as you think about what it means to walk in the light, you you have to ask yourself, what must I do to make my heart happy in God every day? Get you a Spotify playlist that awakens your heart to worship God. Open God's word and beg for him to make your heart alive to him today. God, let my heart beat for you today. Make me sensitive to sin. Get with some brothers or sisters in Christ in your small group or uh, here at TCC to to say, help me love God. Help me desire God. Listen, it doesn't say, notice what he's, he doesn't say, put away, he, he doesn't just say sexual morality has no place, crude joking has no place, so you know what you need to do? You need to clean up your jokes. You need to listen to Brian Regan. He's a clean comedian. You need to not watch those shows. That's a good show. That's a bad show. He doesn't say, you know, um, instead of this, you know, you should, you should go about hanging out with people in this way. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say the answer to crude joking is clean joking. You should do clean joking, not crude joking. But that's not the answer. The answer is giving thanks. The answer is being satisfied in God. That's what can turn our hearts from sin. But then he goes on to say that not only we must, must we make ourselves satisfied in God, we must know that God's judgment is real. Look at verse five. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral, immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, that is that who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of God in Christ. We have a God who makes clear in no uncertain terms what sin is. A God who is who is un uh, unashamed to show love to those who are unlovable. Unashamed to to pour out his love and his mercy on those who are undeserving, and we have a God who's uncompromising in his holiness. He calls sin sin. And you say, well, Michael, does this mean, does this mean Christians won't struggle in this area? I mean, did did I read that right? Anyone who is sexually immoral, immoral or impure will have no place in the kingdom of God. The short answer is that anyone who willfully, persistently rejects what God says and chooses to live their own way can have no confidence that they belong to God. As a believer, you will sin. But what marks a believer and those who don't believe is that when they sin, they feel the conviction of God's Spirit and they're willing to repent. If today, if, there's, if you find yourself caught up in the immorality and the impurity that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 3-4, through and your heart is pricked knowing that where you are at and what you are doing is displeasing to God and is is making you a wreck internally as well as externally in relationships with others, you can be sure that the devil isn't making you think a second thought about whether or not you should persist in your sin. That's God and His grace that is convicting you of sin and telling you to turn away. We will find ourselves struggling with sin. But the mark of the believer is that they are unwilling to persist in disbelief and rejection of God and His commands. We have a God who makes sin clear in no uncertain terms. And yet that same God who says, no matter how great your sin is, it's not greater than my love. It's not greater than my grace. I can't get over that. I, 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 mean, I don't know... I don't know if you've thought about your sin much lately, but when I think about my sin, I think about how often sometimes I've struggled with anger or I've struggled with lust or I've struggled with pride or I've struggled with self-centeredness and how God in His patience and His forbearance has dealt with me not according to my sins, as the psalmist says, but who extends His love to me that holiness means we walk in love, which means we know a God who is love. And holiness means that we walk in light, which means we know a God who is holy. Those two things come together. And they come together most fully and most clearly in the cross where God's holiness and His love meet for us, for us as sinners. And I don't know, I don't know if, you, if you need to hear this or not, but if you are caught in sin, bound by immor- immorality and impurity... Bound by any other sin, bound by disbelief. And yet God in His mercy keeps pursuing you, keeps bringing that person in your life to talk to you about faith, that keeps bringing you across the path to hear God's word. God is calling you to Himself. He's saying, Come to me. My judgment is real, but my grace is greater for all those who will turn to me. And Paul says, Don't be deceived. How often we try to deceive, we're deceived by others and we deceive ourselves into thinking it's not that big of a deal. Maybe we're maybe everybody's just overreacting. It, it, I, this is the last time I'll do that. You know, I'm not at least I'm not doing these things. We we compromise, we we we. Uh, we try, to, uh, we, we try to rename it. We, we try to justify it. We, we dismiss it. We excuse it. We make ourselves busy with other things to, to not have to face our sin. And God allows us to face our sin and to find freedom. His judgment is real. Don't be deceived. But he says, be who you are. He says, you are children of light, that this is our new identity. Again, as we talk about what it means to walk in light, you are light. That's who God's made you to be. And to be a child of light is to walk in the light and to figure out what it says there in verse 9, what is pleasing to the Lord. You can become partakers with those who are walking in darkness, or you can walk in light and find out what's pleasing to the Lord. In some ways, that's, that's the whole that's the choice do i find out what it means to partake in the darkness or do i walk in the light and please my father do i walk in the light and please a god who loved me and gave himself up for me this is our identity it's not just something we're called to and listen if if the morality of christianity sounds compelling and yet you're not willing to submit to the christ of christianity there will be a disconnect we we can't just try out our hand at what at what god is calling us to without first being transformed, receiving a new identity. But he goes on to say, and as we seek to discern what's pleasing to the Lord, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it's shameful to even speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There are two things that this means. He says that we bring... <clears throat> that we bring light to darkness. Excuse me, let me get this. I'm going to get it right. We bring <clears throat> darkness to light and we bring light to darkness. Let me unpack what I mean by that. We bring light to darkness. To, to, to walk in the light means that we're going not just to, we're definitely not going to partake in the works of darkness, but instead we're going to expose them. That means that we bring light to what's dark. And when you expose darkness, it means that you are able to see it for what it is. You're able to see sin for what it is. You're able to see the destruction and the brokenness that it's causing you and others. We're able to see sin in all of its forms. And no doubt Paul is as he applies this to immorality and impurity here. But it allows when you walk in the light, it allows us as God's people to be able to see all kinds of sin, all kinds of injustice, all kinds of brokenness in our world. And God shines his light on it. And he brings his light to the darkness so that we can see it for what it is. As God's people, we're to be a people who aren't jaded and disillusioned, who aren't cynical. We are to be a people who see darkness for what it is. We're to see sin for what it is and to walk in the light, to expose it, to not not be comfortable with what's not right, good, and true. To not tolerate what's not right, good, and true, but to be a people who speak when we see what isn't good, what isn't right, what isn't true. That's what it means to bring light to darkness, to expose that which is in the dark. But it also says that anything that, that is exposed, there in verse 14, anything, um, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes light. It's talking about transformation here. That not only do we bring light to darkness, but we bring darkness to light. When you expose the light of Christ on what is dark, you see sin. You see what's wrong and broken in the world for what it is. You're able to invite into what's right. You're, in a, you're able to invite into the life that's found in the light of the world that is Christ. That's, that's what it means to expose it. That there's this negative aspect that we, we call it out. But there's this positive aspect that we call that which is in darkness into the light. This is our mission, to be a people who are set apart, who, are, who, who, who bring light to darkness, but who also hold out the light so that those who are in darkness may come to the light. And then finally, not only does holiness mean that we walk in love and that we walk in light, but holiness means that we walk in wisdom. Next week we're going to begin a series on relationships and we're going to return to this passage Because it's this passage that not only is the key to our holiness, but it's also the key to relationships. Paul says that we're to walk in wisdom. Holiness means that we walk in wisdom. And especially in verse 18, but, but listen to verse 15. It says, Look carefully then, Here's our word, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And the mark of a wise person is that they listen to the Lord. They fear the Lord. We're to be people who walk in wisdom, who fear God rather than fear man. And in turn, we make the best use of our time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, to walk in wisdom means, as we see here, that we we make the best use of our time. It means that you order your life according to a reverence for God and accordance to obedience to God's Word, a, a desire to please God. You see, I think we, we know and see that the days are evil, and yet we sometimes think that we're free just to, to go about using our time as we see fit. You see, you can... You can, you can tell where your priorities are at when your life is stressed, when you, whatever it is the first thing that you cut, whatever it is that you're unwilling to make time for. And frankly, to step on all of our toes, it's often the Lord, it's often the church, it's often His people, fellowship and community with God's people. And that's been consistently true throughout time. It's not like it's unique to our day. God regularly is reminding His people to, to use their time in a way that pleases the Lord, to number your days so that you may walk in wisdom. We we need to know how to use our time. We need to know what to use our time on, and we need to know um, we need to pay attention to why we use our time on certain things. That's how we walk in wisdom. To to be a holy people means that we're paying attention to the particulars of our life and how we go about our life, what we spend our time on. Are you spending your time on things that? are eternally significant are you doing your work in such a way that reflects god's heart for the people you work with for the tasks that he gives you to do do you have his purpose that permeates the things that you do this is how we are to think about our time and what it means to walk in wisdom to be willing to listen to god to fear god but then he ultimately says that we're to we're to walk in the spirit And as I said, we'll return to this idea, but he compares being filled with the Spirit to being drunk with wine. Some people loosen up, say things they wouldn't otherwise say or do things they wouldn't otherwise do when they're drunk on wine or alcohol. It's an apt description for what it means to be filled with the Spirit, not because of uh, any type of, um, you know, uh, and losing uh, a sense of inhibition and doing crazy things, but it's about control. What happens when you are drunk is you, in a certain sense, lose control of certain things. And the same way when we're filled with the Spirit, it's about yielding control to God. You see, to be filled with the Spirit isn't, isn't us getting more of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit getting more of us. It's us yielding to Him and saying to God and His Spirit, have your way in me. And to, to live a holy life, to walk in holiness, to, to be able to navigate life and, and have God's wisdom for, for how to walk through this life means that we need the Spirit to be at work through us to accomplish God's desires in us. And God calls us to holiness, but He gives us everything that we need to live a life of holiness by His Spirit. And when you have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God moves us to worship, It moves us to community. It moves us to meaningful relationships. It says in Ephesians 5.21 that as the Spirit fills us, we submit to one another. Mutually submitting to one another. Mutually enjoying meaningful relationships with one another. And it's also in Ephesians 5.22 that we begin to see the shift as Paul addresses husbands and wives. As he addressed children. As he addressed all kinds of relationships within the church. And it's why as we think about what it means to be God's church, the community of God, we have to think about what it means to have meaningful relationships in our lives. And at the heart of both being a holy church and at the heart of God's design for relationships is the empowering presence and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So this morning, as we close and our band comes up to, to lead us in our final song of worship, I want to ask you, what has control in your heart? What has control in your life? Does God's Spirit working in accordance with His Word, working in line with the truth of the Gospel, working in line with the love of God, revealed in Christ, laying down His life for us, is that what controls you? Is that what's controlling the way that you walk? Or is something else controlling the way you walk? Are other desires competing? with a desire for God? Are other affections competing with an affection for God? Are other commitments competing with your commitment to the Lord? To be a holy church means that we have to order our lives to walk in holiness, to be defined by love, to be defined by light, and to be defined by wisdom.